0: Good morning. Good morning. Good to be with you all. Let me invite you to grab your copy of God's Word and open to the passage that was just read aloud to us. If you don't own a copy of God's Word, we'd love to gift you with one. They're in a, on the bar here in the room off to my left. Mith, would you mind closing that door? Outside. Thank you. We're continuing our study through the book of Judges, and we're looking at whole chapters at a time. Uh, I, I don't know about you, but I've had a blast going through this book making sense of the stories, seeing how every story points to Jesus and and highlights our need for a Savior. We've continued going through Judges, even in the midst of the holiday season. And of course, uh, now Christmas is over and we're preparing for the new year. But as Christmas has come and gone, I, I think it's good and wise for us to be thoughtful and reflective upon how Christmas went. I think it's especially important for a Christian to reflect upon these realities and analyzing how intentions matched uh, realities, how beliefs matched behavior. Of course, for a Christian, Christmas is a special time of remembering the birth of Jesus. Remembering that God sent his son to rescue humanity and, and this son, Jesus, entered humanity as a baby. But in the midst of the Western world of 2018, the holiday season can be a very dangerous time in the life of a Christian. Can't it? It can be a very dangerous time because there's much temptation, there's much display, there's much proclamation for celebrating and remembering a different reason for the season, if you will. It can be a dangerous time for a Christian who is inundated with advertisements and sales and the meaning of true Christmas can easily be swept away with the broom of gifts and materialism and Santa. Although the initial intention was to celebrate the giver, the greatest gift of the giver, Jesus Christ himself, we can easily be deceived and fall short on settling for remembering material gifts alone. And if we're not careful and intentional, a Christian can say, of course, Christmas is about remembering Jesus, while all the while the reality is you're more excited and passionate and value receiving material goods than Remembering the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. We can be wrapped up in what's owed to us in our Christmas lists, making sure that we got everything that we wanted, that we told people that we wanted. In other words, it's easy for Christians at Christmas to be incongruent in their confessions and the reality. And I don't mean to start this morning on such a downer, but I was thinking, reflecting upon these realities. Uh, because of what I was seeing and studying in Judges 8. I was thinking and examining on my own incongruencies in my own heart around Christmas time and what really excites me, what really I I long to celebrate. Is it the birth of Jesus or is it something else? And as I was studying Judges 8 this week and reflecting upon that reality, we see a similar thing in Gideon. We see similar to how a Christian can be hypocritical or incongruent in the celebration of Christmas and the true remembrance of Jesus' birth, similar to how we can easily get caught up in wealth and worship of material goods and enticed by our own pride and selfishness. This is what we see in the final chapter about Gideon, similar realities and truths and concepts. What we see in Judges 8 is that this Gideon forgets God. He's enticed by pride. He is motivated by revenge. And by wealth, he forgets the grace and the kindness and the mercy that God has shown him in the first two chapters that we've seen about him. We see later on in the story that his confessions don't match up with his actions as he confesses, I don't want to rule over you, the Lord rules over you, yet his actions say something very different. And God, the true hero, the true meaning of the deliverance that God brought through Gideon, I think is forgotten and blurred in Judges 8. So by way of introduction, my plan this morning is to Work through this text to make sense of the story, to maybe answer any questions you might have in the text, or bring clarity to confusing cultural historical elements, and then answer the three questions that we've been seeking to answer each week as we've studied through Judges. What does this story proclaim about God and his relationship with his people? How does this story connect with the Bible's larger story or meta-narrative? And lastly, what exhortation or admonition does this story offer? We're doing this every week as we study through Judges in an effort to help us grow as students of God's word and help us make sense of this crazy book called Judges. So the story begins with a problem. The story begins with a complaint. The men of Ephraim, it's another tribe that Gideon is not from, they come to Gideon, they say in verse 1, what is this that you have done? You haven't called us when you went to fight against Midian, and they accused him fiercely. Now this comes right out of Judges 7, which is where God rescued his people with 300 men something like 300 against 100,000, God saves Israel through these 300 men and they don't really even fight. They blow trumpets, they shout, they break jars that they have torches in and and the Bible says that the Lord turned their swords against one another and the Lord brings victory to the Israelites. Okay, so Ephraim now that this has happened, they seemingly are a little angry and jealous that they were left out of the party. They weren't a part of the original plan. Ephraim, which is one of the greatest tribes, the most, maybe numerous of the tribes of Israel, could have thought a leader from our tribe should have risen up and saved Israel from the hands of Midian. Why weren't we a part of this original plan? Why weren't we invited to rout Midian? And they accused him fiercely. And we see Gideon does a little smooth talking. He's a little diplomatic in his response. Gideon says this in verse two, what have I done in comparison with you? Is not the gleaning of grapes of Ephraim better than the grape harvest of Abiezer? God has given into your hands the prince of Midian, Oreb, and Zeb. What have I been able to do in comparison with with you? And what Gideon is saying is this. I'm not as great as you guys. Wow, I mean, you guys are Ephraim. I'm from Manasseh. I'm from the clan of Abiezer. I mean, the gleaning of grapes, meaning the grapes that were left after the original harvest of Ephraim, they don't even compare with my Initial harvest of Ebiaser, Your grapes are way better. You see what he's doing here. He's smooth-talking. He's being diplomatic. He says, what, what have I done in comparison with you? God has given into your hands the prince of Midian. And Gideon is downplaying his own role in the victory. He's trying to puff up the men of Ephraim. He's trying to avoid and avert this crisis. He's very diplomatic and it works. The last sentence of verse three, then their anger against him subsided when he said this. is able to talk his way out of this, subdue their anger, and he's continuing on in the pursuit of the, the kings of Midian that escaped from this battle. The princes have been killed, but the kings have escaped and Gideon is chasing after them. Verse four, it says, he came to the Jordan and crossed over. He and 300 men were with him, exhausted yet pursuing. And then he comes to a town called Succoth, which I think is an unfortunate place to be from. <laughs> but he says, please give me some bread to the people who follow me, for they are exhausted. And I am pursuing after Ziba and Zalmunna, the kings of Midian. So he's coming to the men of this town. He's pursuing after these guys. His army is hungry. He's just asking, hey guys, give me some bread. Give me some nourishment. And the officials of Seca said, are the hands of Ziba and Zalmunna already in your hand? When they ask that question, are the hands already in your hand? The, in this hi- historical time, cutting off the hands was a way of counting the dead. So when they're saying, are the hands already in your hand? They're saying, if they're not dead, we're not going to do anything. Right? Show me that they're dead. I'm not going to help you unless they're dead. And Gideon really doesn't like this. I, I doubt that you'll find this, this uh, description or story in the, in the kid stories about Gideon, right? So well then, when the Lord has given Ziba and Zalmunna into my hand, I will flail your flesh with thorns of the wilderness and with briars. History tells us that this was a torture uh, method or mode of the Assyrians. And you imagine how bloody and gruesome this would be to have your f- flesh flayed with thorns and briars. This is cruel. This is not just, I'm just going to kill you guys with a sword. I'm going I'm to punish you with, severely. Gideon moves on from Succoth. He comes to this other town, Penuel. And the men answered the same way. And it could have been that uh, they were a little skeptical. You know, Gideon only has 300, and Midian was described as having a swarm of locusts. They were great in number. Maybe they were fearful of, well, if we help Gideon, and Gideon actually doesn't win, then Midian's going to punish us. Okay, they're skeptical. They doubt Gideon. But Gideon responds so harshly. He says, when I come again, I will break down your tower. Gives them a little different punishment, but it's a similar thought. So, Gideon continues on there in verse 11, or excuse me, verse 10. The story shifts to a different setting where Zeba and Zalmuni, these kings of Midian, are in Karkor with their army, about 15,000, with all the men of the east. And they had come up by this way because they felt secure. But Gideon comes up around them and he attacks them while they feel secure. He pursues them, he routs the enemy, and he captures these kings. All right, so he comes up on this army where they feel secure. They're in this, they're in, they're in this place called Kakor. They feel safe. Gideon attacks them. And of course he doesn't kill them because what does he have to do? He has to go back to Succoth and Penuel and say, told you so. He has to do his showboating. He has to do his revenge and show them, I did what I said I was going to do, and now you're going to learn a lesson. In fact, this is what happens. After he captures the kings of Midian, he comes and he captures a young man of Succoth. He questions him. This young man writes down the names of these officials. The narrator tells us it's 77 men. He comes to Succoth. He says in verse 15, Behold, Ziba and Zamuna, whom you taunted me, saying, Are the hands of Ziba and Zamuna already in your hand, that we should give bread to your men who are exhausted? In verse 16, he took the elders of the city and he took thorns of the wilderness and briars and with them taught the men of Succoth a lesson. Verse 17, he broke down the tower of Penuel. He killed all the men of the city. Notice he didn't say he was gonna kill them all. He said he was gonna break down their tower, but look at the severe way that Gideon is responding to Succoth and Panuel. And it's important to note that These towns are actually in Israelite territory. So these people are Israelites. This is the first judge that turns on his own people. Gideon is treating his own people like enemies. He's punishing them like enemies of the state. And what we see in verses 18 and 19 is the reveal of what was Gideon's motive in pursuing these kings. Why was he doing this? The narrator reveals the motive behind it. After he's killed the men of Succoth and Penuel, he says to Zeb and Zalmunna, where are the men in whom you killed at Tabor? Now this is interesting. We haven't, we haven't heard about Tabor before. We haven't been introduced to this concept. This is new to us. And the king answers, they say, as we are, so were they. Each one of them resembled the son of a king. And this is just a way of, I think, them trying to flatter Gideon. They look like you, Gideon, a son of a king. But Gideon says, verse 19, they were my brothers, the son of my mother. As the Lord lives, as he had say of their life, I would not kill you. So we see the motive behind this conquest. We see the motive behind going after the kings of Midian. It was not a just or holy war, as we've seen earlier in the book of Judges. This was a personal vendetta, This was, you killed my family members, now I'm going to come after you. This was about revenge, his personal agenda. It's interesting to note that throughout the story, God is really seemingly absent. God doesn't command Gideon to go after these kings. God's word is not with him as he does this. This is seemingly Gideon acting on his own and fulfilling this ambition and goal of personal revenge. And it seems like he wants to even further humiliate these kings because he asked his son, a young boy, to kill them. He asks his young boy, take, take my sword and kill these kings. And like his father previously, he's afraid. He doesn't do it. And the kings of Midian, they taunt Gideon. They challenge him. They challenge his strength and his manhood, his family. They say, rise and, and fall upon us for yourself. For as the man is, so is his strength. And Gideon finishes them off. He rises and kills them. He takes the crescent ornaments that were on their necks and on their camels. And I think if we were to stop the story just at verse 21, we would think this is is bad enough, right? (laughs) This Gideon, this promising Gideon that we saw in verse 6 and 7, who was timid, who was afraid. What has happened to that Gideon? Even the Gideon who was diplomatic at first, now he's killing his own people with excruciating torture methods and Killing kings because of a personal vendetta or vengeance? But the story gets worse. We come to the story of Gideon's ephod. After, we do, after verse 21, it says in verse 22 that the men of Israel said to Gideon, rule over us, you and your son and your grandson. Establish a dynasty, Gideon, that will rule over us. For you saved us from the hand of Midian. Gideon gives us some hope for a little bit. He gives us like the Sunday school answer, the answer that we would want to see or maybe God would want to hear. He says, I will not rule over you and my son will not rule over you, but the Lord will rule over you. Now, as I was studying for this passage in Judges 8, uh, verses 22 and 23 is, could be described as like the main theme or verse of the whole book. This is a key point in, in the book itself as the people are asking for a king. People are asking for a human to rule over them. And though at first Gideon gives us some hope that he doesn't want to be the guy, that he's reminding them it's the Lord who's going to rule over them, there's multiple reasons why his actions don't line up with these confessions. He asks in verse 24 that everyone should give him the earnings from his spoil. This was kind of a, a, a thing that royalty would do for the, the royal uh, plunder. It's what kings would do. And it ends up being 1,700 shekels, which is about 40 pounds of gold. He takes the crescent ornaments, the pendants, the garments that were worn by the kings of Midian for himself. He doesn't correct the people. Did you notice that in verse 22? When they say, you saved us from the hand of Midian, he doesn't say, oh, no, no, it was not me. God is the one who really did it. He takes what symbolized the kings of Midian, their crest ornaments and their purple clothes, he takes them for itself. Later, we're, we're, it's described that Gideon takes many wives and has 70 sons. This is something else that kings would do. 70 might have been a symbolic number, but having uh, multiple offspring, many wives, was common for the other kings of the ancient Eastern peoples. So this might be an attempt of Gideon to make himself look kingly. And to top it all off, the cherry on top is his son, Abimelech, The name means my father is king. So you see, Gideon's confessions and his actions are not lining up. And Gideon not only acts hypocrisy, but he acts idolatrously. He takes these earrings and he makes an ephod. And an ephod was a a garment that was worn by the high priest, it was special, it was sacred. And Gideon is neither, he's not a priest, he's not directed by God to do this, he shouldn't have made it or had one for himself. The ephod was, it, kind of, it could symbolize hearing from God or discerning the divine will of God. It was special. It was designed to be in God's tabernacle and his temple. Gideon might have do, done this to kind of elevate himself, uh, to show his kind of importance so that people would come to him uh, as well in discerning the will of God and hear advice and hear his will. And verse 27 shows us that it becomes a snare to his family. And all Israel whores after it. They, they commit spiritual adultery with this ephod. They worship it. We see at the end of Gideon's life is that instead of delivering his people and leading them to worship and return to the one true God, he's maybe even leading them to worship himself. He's even using the things of God for his own good and glory. God is still so merciful and compassionate and patient with Gideon. Gideon is not instantly punished. Oppressors are not instantly raised up and destroyed. It says Gideon uh, died at a good old age. The land had rest for 40 years. But it's important to note that this is the last time that we'll see that phrase. The land had rest for 40 years. All throughout the book of Judges, there are other judges who are raised up, who save the people from oppressors. But this is the last place in which we're told the land had rest meaning it's just getting worse and worse. And we'll see that in Gideon's own family, things get worse and worse with Abimelech, as we will hear next week in Judges 9. But the story of Gideon ends with the people turning back. They worship other gods. They make this god, Baal-Bareth, their god, which sadly and ironically, the name Baal-Bareth means Baal, or Lord of the Covenant, so they're turning from the one true God of the covenant, the one uh, that they had the original covenant with, and they're turning to a false God. They don't remember the Lord who delivered them from the hand of their enemies, and they did not show steadfast love to the family of Drupal, that is Gideon, in return for all the good that he had done to Israel. So the story kind of starts with worship and forgetting of the Lord and spiritual idolatry, and this is how it ends. The story of Gideon starts at Ophrah, and the story ends at Ophrah. Things haven't gotten better. In fact, they've gotten worse. Now the people are asking for a king to rule over them. Now the judges are even leading the people into idolatry and into sin. And that's how the story concludes in the three chapters, the three parts about the story of Gideon. Although we saw this great character in Judges 7, a character who relied upon faith, who was obedient to God, who led 300 men to kill 100,000 Midianites... The bookends of Gideon's story aren't, aren't very, they don't show him in the best light. The bookends of Gideon's story is that Gideon is filled with self-doubt and insecurity and fear in the beginning. And at the end, he's filled with self-will and pride and lack of discernment and harshness and idolatry. And now that we've worked through this text, we've looked at some of the historical context, we need to try to make sense of what the story is trying to teach us. We want to answer that first question in our handout. How did, what does this story proclaim about God and his relationship with his people? We want to ask ourselves, what can we learn from this story? What can we learn about God and, and his relationship with those that are supposed to be in relationship with him? And this question should cause us to think because in Judges 8, like I said before, God is seemingly absent from the story. God is not apparently as active in Judges 8 as he was in 6 and 7. And when I say God is absent, it doesn't mean, of course, that he's absent because God is all sovereign and always present. He is with his people, guiding and directing and leading all things, but he's seemingly absent in Judges 8. Gideon is the one who's seemingly doing this all on his own. There's no word from God. There's no command from God to do what he does. As we saw in certain chapters before, God and his glory are not upheld. They're defamed and dishonored. In the midst of all this, I think there's multiple things that we can learn about this story that where God is seemingly absent in his relationship with people, but I want to focus on one truth this morning, that God is the king and the ruler that humanity needs. Judges 8 shows us that left to themselves, leaders and the people of God will pursue self-elevation, personal revenge, pride, wealth, status. God's people will be misled into idolatry and worshiping other gods. When God's people are not motivated by his word and driven by the word, but their own desires and their ambitions drive things, it leads to ruin and destruction and violence and idolatry follows. From the story and the example of a harsh, bad, idolatrous leader, we see that it's God, not Gideon, who should have been asked to rule over them. In this clear example and contrast against God in Gideon, we see that it's God not Gideon who is worthy and deserving of honor and worship and giving and uh, honoring him as king and ruler. God is the true and the righteous and the merciful king that Israel needed, that they should have returned to. There is such a contrast in Judges 8 and 6 and 7 in how God responds and how Gideon responds. Did you notice that? Did you notice the difference in how God responded to skepticism and unbelief and how Gideon responded? God showed Gideon sign after sign. He was gracious and merciful and patient with him. He showed him four signs proving my love for you, my care for you, that I'm with you, that my word can be trusted, that I'm going to do what I say I'm going to do. And yet what do we see in Gideon in Judges 8? Someone doesn't believe him one time, They're skeptical, severe punishment. It's not, okay, I'll I'll have grace upon you. You know, I'm, I'm not God, but I believe God is going to hand these kings into my hand, and I'll show you. I'm going to be kind and gracious to you. He says, I'm going to flail your flesh with thorns. God is merciful when his own people treat him as an enemy, and yet Gideon is harsh, ruthless with his own people. God never leads his people into sin. He's continually raising up deliverers and calling them out of sin, calling them back to himself. And we see in Gideon, he he leads his people into sin. Gideon leads his people to worship an ephod and forget God and worship other Baals. Gideon's actions don't line up with his word. Gideon says, I'm not going to rule over you. The Lord's going to rule over you. Yet his actions don't reflect that reality. And yet with God, his words always match his actions. In fact, often God's word is his action. God is the true and righteous and trustworthy and honest and sincere king and ruler that the Israelites need. And in the contrast of Gideon, I think we see that in the story. Judges 8, 22 and 23 is a central and key verse in the whole book. As we talked about before, it describes kind of the the problem with the Israelites that they wanted this human to rule over them. They wanted... uh, 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 a human ruler, they were turning and forgetting the one true God, the creator of all things. They weren't content with his rule and reign. They wanted something else. They wanted a person to behold and to worship and to honor. Yet what we see in Gideon is that human judges and rulers will fail again and again and again. This is how this story connects with the Bible's larger story or narrative, Where humanity is continually shown as coming up short. We know the Bible is not a story about heroes and people to emulate. Humanity comes up short again and again. Human kings and rulers come up short. The promising Gideon that we see in Judges 7 takes a bad downfall in Judges 8. And it only gets worse from Gideon on. It gets dark and twisted and rated R. Later in the book of Samuel, the people want a king. So they get a king named Saul. And Saul is not a good king. He's ruthless and violent and angry and disobedient. God raises up and anoints another guy named David. And he's even described as a man after God's own heart, but even he fails and falls short. And from his line and lineage comes king after king after king who are dishonest and disobedient, who lead the people into idolatry, who forget the Lord. And yet there is good news because to David and to his line, God promises that one day there would be a king. would be good one day there would come a king who would be righteous and true and just one day there would come a king who would set up an everlasting kingdom this is what the prophet isaiah said he would be called wonderful counselor mighty god everlasting father prince of peace of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end another prophet named jeremiah said that the son of david would be wise and execute justice and righteousness meaning he would always do good He would always be upright and pure. He would commit no evil. He would uphold a righteous rule. And the whole Old Testament is looking forward to and longing for this king, this Messiah, this judge, this ruler, this king who would come and make things right. We flip our Bibles into the New Testament and we we see a man named Jesus who steps onto the scene. A man named Jesus who described us from the lineage of David. A man who named Jesus who describes himself as this Messiah, this anointed king, who had come to save his people from their sins, who was the promised Messiah, the messianic king that would that all humanity has been longing for. Jesus enters the world being fully divine and takes on flesh being fully human. Jesus is the merciful and good king that even when he's mistreated and he's unjustly sentenced, he's falsely accused, he's led and sentenced to death on a cross, he does not respond with vengeance or with promised punishment. This Jesus, who is jeered and made fun of as he hangs on a cross, as people could not fathom the idea of a king being crucified, of a king being publicly shamed upon a Roman cross, they make fun of him. They, they hurl insults at him. And Jesus doesn't say, just wait till this is over. I'm going to come down from this and I'm going to smite you. You want to be smitten? Smote? Smited? Jesus does not respond in harsh and ruthless ways. In fact, as people are jeering him and making fun of him on the cross, He says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. This Jesus, who's completely trustworthy and righteous, never leads his people into sin or idolatry. In fact, he takes the punishment of humanity's sin and idolatry upon himself. Jesus does not come into the world to condemn it. He is condemned on behalf of his people. Jesus didn't come to punish, he came to be punished so that rebellious sinners like you and me could walk in freedom and forgiveness. Though Jesus was scorned and mocked and treated with contempt, he shows steadfast love to unlovely sinners. And Jesus doesn't wait until we get our acts together. Jesus doesn't wait until we show him the love that he deserves. Jesus loves us while we are yet sinners. Jesus doesn't wait to receive the honor and glory that he is deserving. He loves us and pursues us. He loves us not because we're lovable, not because we're lovely. He loves us while we, are, we were God's enemies. He loves us to make us lovely. Jesus doesn't love us because we're pure and righteous. Jesus loves us to make us pure and righteous. Only King Jesus can do this. Only King Jesus is the one who loves his subjects and his enemies greater and first before any reciprocated love. Jesus is the only king who outserves his people. You can never outserve King Jesus. Jesus doesn't step onto the scene as king and demand glory and honor and recognition and faith. He enters the world as a baby and humbles himself to the point of death on a cross. Jesus brings us into his kingdom and places us under his lordship, not because we are obedient, but simply because he loves us and he is a good king. Jesus is the king that the Israelites needed. Jesus is the greatest king. Jesus is the king that Gideon points to. Jesus is the greater Gideon who is faithful to the end. Jesus is the greater Gideon who never leads his people into sin, but rescues them from sin. Jesus is the king that all humanity is in desperate need of and the, the king that you and I are in dire need to rule over us. My friends, Judges 8 gives us an admonition, a warning. This story offers a warning in our fleshly and carnal desire for self-rule, for longing from ruling by human figures, our created things, for forgetting and neglecting the one true king, the one true God. Judges 8 is a gracious admonition and warning to the danger of pride and sin and idolatry and acting in self-will and for personal gain. We see that clearly. Judges is a warning against the desire that we have to be ruled by someone other than God. Desire that we ask, rule over us. Something other than God, some person or thing or self, rule over us other than God. I think it would be unwise for us to read a passage like this and say, if you are a Christian, well, this doesn't really apply to me because Jesus is my king. And that was their problem, Jesus is my king. Or, or maybe you're here this morning and you're not a Christian and you say, well, this doesn't really apply to me, Daniel. This is kind of irrelevant because no one rules over me. I've never said those words that way, rule over me. Who does that, right? This doesn't really apply to me. I'm, I'm the king of my castle. I'm the ruler of my life. I do what I want when I want, and that's the way it should be. Friends, we might not say this this way, rule over us, to things and people or ourselves other than God, but we do this. And, And let me invite you to think about it this way. What do you seek? What are your greatest desires and longings? What is the one thing that you're striving after? What's your ambition and your goals in life? Because I found a reality to be true in my life and in the lives of others that we are controlled by what we seek. So, you seek romance, you seek to find that perfect spouse or mate or lover. Your greatest desire is for a significant other. You will be controlled by that significant other, whether you have one or not, how, how well they're treating you. You seek approval from others. I know this personally. You seek approval, you're going to be controlled by perceptions or thoughts or opinions and, of how others think you are. You seek comfort, you'll be controlled by making sure you're comfortable. You're going to avoid uncomfortable things. You might, this might show up in poor health or excessive sleeping. You seek feelings of being alive, you're going to be controlled by chasing the one thing from the next. You seek model children, you'll be controlled by your children's behavior. You seek security and status and honor and material goods, you'll be controlled by money. You might use people or things for your own advancement. You might be cheap and stingy. You see the point here. You're controlled by what you seek. So I would submit to you that what you seek, what you long for, that what you desire most deeply it is in fact the functional ruler of your heart. And Judges 8 offers us a warning that we must all take seriously. God is alerting us in this story of the downfall of Gideon, seeing the negative effects of of what bad things happen with the clear and apparent rebellion. The story warns us of a heart that's set upon self, set upon a personal agenda, set upon self-elevation and preservation. The story warns us not to set our heart and rule over created things or ourselves or other people. Because we are not the good and just and true and kind and merciful rulers of our hearts. Our hearts are often easily deceived and tricked and easily controlled and easily confused and easily led astray. We think well we know what's best. So I ask if you haven't for the first time today, that today might be the day in which you realize, you see, and you admit that you are not the best ruler of your life. That there was one who is far better. There is one who is far greater, there is one who is far more knowledgeable, there is one who is far more gracious, there is one who is far more appealing and satisfying who can rule over your heart. And friends, I would ask this morning that we would search our hearts for how we are like Gideon, for how God's grace and mercy hasn't permeated our actions, so that the same grace and love that we receive is not flowing out in the way that we treat others. Friends, I would ask us to search our heart for how we are like Gideon, where the grace and the mercy is not working itself out in our actions. I would ask us to search our hearts for how the gospel is not functional in the comprehensive claims that it takes and makes in our life. I would ask us to search our hearts for the areas of incongruence where our hearts are not in line with the truths of the gospel. And since we can be easily deceived and we can have blind spots, and right now we can be thinking we're far better than we are, we're far less deceived than we are, we must remember the the truth that we cannot really know ourselves apart from community, that we need a faithful friend and community of people around us that can help us and guide us and point us back to Jesus, who can lovingly speak the truths of the gospel into our heart and lovingly speak in ways we're not in line with the truths of the gospel. Friends, let us all come to Jesus to see his kind and merciful and just and perfect and sovereign and supreme rule, and let us submit to it, because his rule is good and gracious and far greater than anything else. Jesus is the only king and ruler who forgive you when you fail him and satisfy your longing hearts when you submit to him. Let Jesus' rule in your hearts be in line with Jesus' rule of his kingdom. Amen? Amen?